So this one is part two with me and Betty Murray. And Betty's coming back with her knowledge of studies. She has this gift where she can really deep dive into all the scientific literature out there, break it down, call bullshit when it needs to be called out, and really tell you what she is seeing in the world of menopause. There's a silent suffering going on with ladies. And I think a lot of this is brought on from the media and again, from the messages that you're getting from your doctor to just deal with those symptoms. You know, just it's part of getting older. You just have to suck it up and suffer in silence. And then when we add on the fact that now there are, I know this is going to be shocking to many of you, drugs that band-aid the symptoms of menopause. You know, instead of actually giving, I don't know, hormones that are lost during menopause, bioidentical hormones that are identical to the hormones that your own body makes, we're going to come out with another pharmaceutical. Doesn't that sound familiar? All of you thyroid patients out there who have received a statin and an antidepressant and a sleeping pill and a blood pressure medication, here's one more to add to your pharmaceutical basket. It's one for menopause. Oh my God. So hold on to your pants. Enjoy this one where Betty and I bitch once again about things that chap our ass. This one regards menopause and the silent suffering that many of us women do. And you know what? We don't have to. Betty Murray, we are back again because we just have such great conversations and I love talking to you. And, you know, one of the the focuses that we like to to touch on on our podcast are things that really chap our ass because I bitch about a lot on my podcast. So what is kind of getting under your skin these days that you want to talk about on here? Man, there was, you know, there's two things that really came up in the last couple of weeks that, you know, still have me going, always have me going, same thing, <laughs> constantly complaining about what's going on. So the first one was, I don't know if you watched it during the Super Bowl, there was a public service announcement kind of commercial for a drug company. And the drug company is the maker, or the company's name is Estella. And it's the maker of a drug called Fezolentant right? Fezolentin. So what the commercial was for anybody that didn't watch it, it wanted to make sure that women understood the symptoms of menopause. Vasomotor symptoms, V-A-S. What is V-A-S? That was the whole thing of the commercial. You know, and basically they, it pointed to two things. So there was a, you know, it was a woman out on the street kind of doing interviews and all these women didn't know, like they couldn't name off all the different conditions for menopause and many of them were either confused or whatever. And what they were pointing out is that the, the menopausal symptoms basically boil down to, do you get hot flashes or do you get night sweats? So of course, you know, we've talked about this. I've complained about it and talked about it on the podcast many, many times. So those are the ones that are most obvious, right? That are clear indications something has radically changed. Well, you know, you got to always wonder, why would a drug company promote a public service announcement of two symptoms only? And it's because they have a drug, right? So this drug is a drug that affects a neuron, a protein that binds to a neuron inside the hypothalamus of the brain, controls temperature regulation. Well, you know, if you just went upstream from that, guess what controls thermoregulatory activity? Estradiol. 
right? So instead of doing what we've known to be the appropriate treatment or giving or offering the appropriate treatment of hormone replacement that's been around since the 50s, instead we're going to produce a drug that has direct effect on the hypothalamus that's supposed to change those two symptoms of, you know, night sweats and hot flashes. You know, and so I, you know, and everybody's like, isn't that great? They're taking a hard line in women's health. And I was like, that's complete bullshit. You know, they've just, they're just trying to market. They said, okay, you know, the antidepressant skin, you know, that we put over menopause that we've been trying to push for the last 20 years that you're really depressed. That one's getting stale. We're not getting anywhere. And the patents have run out. So we can't do that anymore. We're not making any money. It's a generic. We'll come up with this other thing, you know. (laughs) <laughs> and, and call it that, but we'll only key into those top concerns. And so, you know, on one hand, yes, thank you for helping women understand that menopause is real and it's got a lot of symptoms with it. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's again, pharma trying to make a condition a concern and then draw attention away from the real reason something is occurring and just try and cover up the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so I just had my panties in a wad to say the least I was not happy about it. Yeah, no. And good pickup on that commercial too. Cause you know, you start watching the Super Bowl commercials, they just start to all blend together, right? Looking for the good ones, the funny ones. And of course they had to slide that in there to basically say, here's another band-aid instead of getting to the root cause of what is creating those symptoms that you're experiencing and those symptoms that most women or maybe yeah i can't say all of us because some some get a pass on the hot flashes but no one gets a pass on menopause your hormones are going to decline bottom line so it's what you do with that and how you address it and treat it that varies from woman to woman but the actual menopausal state is going to happen so instead of picking out the symptoms and saying We have a Band-Aid for that, and we have a Band-Aid for that, we have a Band-Aid for that, and now you're on five different pharmaceuticals for all the different symptoms that you have. Why not just get to the root of the problem? You have declining hormones because menopause is happening. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so you sit there and go, okay, well, now we've flagged these. But again, you know, we know that women go, okay, I'm also experiencing brain fog. Okay. If you've, if you've left your car keys in the refrigerator before, you're experiencing brain fog. You know, you've got no libido. You're having vaginal dryness and painful sex, if not, you know, excruciating sex. You've lost muscle mass. You know, you've now got increased risk for osteoporosis. I have a specialty in osteoporosis and we have two decades of women. We have two generations of women that are struggling with a disease that leads to the greatest morbidity from injury in women's lives over 65. And so what that means is in the injury world, and that's falling off your house to wrecking your car to whatever, a fall resulting in a break is the greatest likelihood of a bad life after that. That's what morbidity means. Stuck in a bed, all of those pieces. So, you know, we have osteoporosis, which can lead to all kinds of things and, you know, lack of mobility and, and that. And then you've got the cardiovascular risk that now we age match men. So men get heart disease. On average, they start producing a lot of that heart disease and cardiovascular disease activity at 40 and 50. So we are kind of protected. But once we hit menopause, we accelerate at 50. Like I went and had a carotid artery screen, a CIMT this morning. Okay. I was like, I, 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 you know, I'm 53. I had one done at 43. Knock that sucker out. Make sure nothing's changed. You know, I it's it's because you have to watch these things because everything starts to increase. And, and so our risk for heart disease and heart attacks now age match men after 50, if we take 50 as a proxy for menopause. 
And when you look at this, all of that from that commercial was, of course, let's, we don't want to talk about those more serious concerns, the, the, the concerns that are showing real bodily decline. You know, hot flash and a night sweat sucks. I, I, I'm really right. honest. I did not have those. You know, right. I did I did not have those as symptoms. I had other stuff that was, you know, playing around. But of course, I went on hormone replacement therapy, you know, to make sure I didn't have a lot of symptoms. But they sting, but they're not causing disease states as itself. But what we see is an acceleration. And obviously, women at the, the Alzheimer's and dementia, we significantly have a greater risk than men. But again, it's it's this constant sort of drawing attention away from the real concerns just to pull it towards, a you know, a new name of a problem, because it'll probably go from vasomotor symptoms to vasomotor syndrome to vasomotor disease, because that's how oh, yeah. that's the other thing. It's a far, this is how pharma works. We make we name the symptom, then we call it a syndrome and then it becomes a disease. Right. And they start marketing it at symptom syndrome. Right. And so as we can slowly let that ball roll downhill and pick up speed, then that's what happens. And by then, the lexicon of the public is that this is now a disease and we're going to look at these individual symptoms altogether. You know, so, yeah, I still look at it and I go, well, thank you for the nod. But it was it was still a backhanded problem and a backhanded slap to women and what's really going on. The other thing that really pissed me off, and I talked about this in a podcast uh, several weeks ago about gaslighting women's health, Mm -hmm. you know, and gaslighting is making somebody feel like they're crazy or or ignoring and bullying and and, uh, not validating somebody's expressions, feelings, symptoms, and other things. And it's rampant in medicine, but particularly rampant in women's health and then people of color and people of different gender orientation. There was an article that was written and published in New York Times, and I was so happy to see it. You know, it just so happened to be right on the heels of me bitching and moaning on my podcast about it. But it was called silent suffering, you know, because it's a taboo subject. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd say it's opening up a little bit more. But what's funny is like around my girlfriends, not my medical and healthcare friends, like, you know, we know everything about each other and we talk about it very freely. But my girlfriends, maybe that I grew up with or that I, you know, know from college or whatever, they don't really say anything about it. And then it's after we've gone through the majority of the symptoms, they'll go, did, did, you, did you have any of this or that? Are you still feeling this or that? You know, because they don't even know that what they're feeling is part of the transitional period that is a process. This article, if somebody hasn't read it, it's, it's called Silent Suffering, and it's by a, a author, Lauren Jackson. We really have a problem where we've got this sexism in medicine, And women are so understudied, which we talked about, but the idea that this is happening at such a rate, and it's also happening younger, right? So not only do women struggle with this, but we have a growing baby boomer and Gen X population. Guess what? We don't outrun menopause, but there's going to be a ton more of us going through it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, it's frustrating because even New York Times can't take a hard line necessarily and say this is this is the next step of what really needs to happen. I want to say a couple stats because I thought this was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So by 2030, if we use the age of 50 as a proxy for women in menopause, because most women are going to be right in that ballpark range, the world population of postmenopausal women will be about 1.2 billion women. Yeah, yeah, with an incidence of 47 million reaching menopause each year. Right now, like I I alluded to earlier, what we see and we can probably talk a little bit about this is there's an increasing number of women who experience early menopause, 
premature ovarian failure, you know, which is kind of distressing because I think it indicates that we see are seeing fertility issues that are probably environmental that are starting younger and younger. So a premature ovarian failure is if somebody's less than 40, if somebody's around 45, they call it early menopause. But it's the spectrum of symptoms of loss of ovarian function, right? Particularly around estrogen and progesterone, but obviously testosterone plays a role of that as well. You know, and so what we see is not only our concerns if we're at 50 and above, but I think we're seeing this snowball effect of something happening in the younger population that we're really ignoring. Yes. No, hands down. Definitely, definitely. And on that note, I have had a couple of very young patients that I had to be the one to tell them this really is looking like premature ovarian failure. I know you don't want to hear that. And their response back was, well, my OBGYN said it was fine. I'm like, well, right, but you have no estrogen at all and your FSH is 100 and you're 32 years old. So I'm sorry that your OBGYN is missing this, but this is just reality. And you're right, Betty, it's something that we're seeing in greater and greater occurrences lately. I don't know, maybe it's because we are testing properly and at least in our world, not in the conventional world, but we're testing properly and we're looking at that that picture of all the hormones playing together. And I, I don't know, I, I think we are seeing it more and more, but yet conventional medicine is just skipping over it and ignoring it. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously I'm not a fertility specialist, but the, the incident of infertility is definitely on the, on the increase, right? So, mm-hmm. so, which is a sign that your hormones are out of balance to begin with, right? Yep. And, and so, you know, I would say, yes, the younger population are very concerned about it. So they're probably getting tested earlier and sort of pursuing that infertility risk profile faster than anybody in our age group would have done. But we do have that earlier onset of these problems. And I think it's, I think it's a couple fold. Like we can identify that body weight and toxin exposure particularly to environmental estrogens, you know, xenoestrogens, pesticides, herbicides, phthalates, all that junk, increases the early onset of menses in small girls, right? Mm -hmm. Hormones and animal feed and all that because we end up absorbing it. And so statistically, it's likely that all of those exposures too are changing the expression of those receptors for estrogen and progesterone and everything else in our body, but they probably are changing the length of time we are actually fertile and how long we'll go before we go to menopause in that process. And so I look at that and I, I first say, okay, you know, cause I keep saying, if you just let women, you know, if we could just get out of our own way, we could definitely have a different world. There's 1.2 billion of us over 50 that could be doing that right in the next right. couple of years. But it's an opportunity for us to change the medical system. Cause again, we outnumber men. Sorry, we outlive you. And statistically, <laughs> you know, statistically we outlive men and there's just more of us born than men. Right. So so as women in this age group where we have the opportunity to really go, OK, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm not going to be gaslighted in medicine. I demand research to be done on women with women, not women as little men. Right. And that we need to start exploring this. We need to, as women, vote with our dollars, vote with our decision making. So if you have doctors and people in your world that don't have the same worldview as you or dismiss you or belittle you 
or anything like that, you fire them. This is a customer service industry. Healthcare is a customer service industry. Yes, they provide really great things, but it is. The consumer is the decision maker. And so I think this also hopefully provides some exposure for people to understand we, ha- we have this problem. Yes, the menopausal transition is real. The hormone changes are real. And you and I just got through talking about like testosterone and how that declines way before 50. Right. You know, those things are real. And we demand accurate and realistic testing. We demand real and accurate action items and treatment that treats the underlying root cause. And we have enough of us to do that. Definitely. And going back to that silent suffering, kind of pulling in everything that you just said, I think too many women, because you and I do live in the world where we talk to each other and we go, well, of course we're going to do hormones. Like, why wouldn't we do hormones? But when you speak to women outside of our circle and outside of this, this functional medicine world, you really start to get a feel for what women think and what they've been taught, whether it's by society or their doctor or their other friends that, maybe you don't treat menopause, that it's just something you have to learn to live with. You have to suffer in silence. And this is just part of getting older. So just shut up and take it and deal with all the symptoms that come with it. And kind of going back to what you were saying about talking to your friend, talking to my neighbor who is, I believe like 54 ish. And she just got her hormones tested and didn't even realize that there's a way to treat low hormones. There's a way to treat menopause and to get through menopause without all of the symptoms or with very, very minimal symptoms. And you and I just take it for granted that, well, everybody should know this, but they don't. So I don't think this isn't, we can't talk about this enough. We cannot do enough podcasts, enough speaking, enough, we can't have enough conversations on the benefit of hormones and telling women that you don't have to suffer silently with menopausal symptoms. You just don't, not these days. When you sit back and think about what a, what a man goes through, because they go through andropause too, but again, it's this slow decline. It's like, you know, you don't really realize a problem's happening because it's kind of like a slow drain. <laughs> you know, right. It's like, oh, not until it's completely drained out. If men experience the same symptoms as women and the same radical decline, we wouldn't have this. You know, it's just it just wouldn't occur. Right. And it's and then I'm not trying to, you know, lament men and most of the men out there had nothing to do with those those decisions. But it's um, but it's but, the you know, if you even look at the environmental financial costs and healthcare costs of women going through menopause and being untreated, mm-hmm. you're going to be more likely to have a heart attack, you know, and as a woman, it'd probably be more fatal. Right. Women's heart attacks are more fatal on the first one than men because the symptoms are something we deal with every day. Nausea, fatigue. We don't get the shooting arm pain and the jaw pain and we hit the floor. We just feel like crap, which is often how women feel, you know, or that we're going to end up, you know, in a memory care unit for five years while we slowly decline from dementia because we've lost estrogen in our life. So it's also a economic condition. It's also a, a societal problem because we outlive men generally. So that also leaves family members as caregivers for right. somebody that is unable to care for themselves but has not died, right? right? You know, and I almost look at it, my cynical self looks at it and goes, well, maybe that's the whole intention because, you know, pharma and medical systems make money when you're still participating, but you don't die. Yeah, Yeah, well, I'm glad you said it because I was going to say it and I don't want to sound like this big 
conspiracy theorist against big pharma, but let's face it, there's reality. And I think we've seen it more and more in the last couple of years that even kind of going back to male testosterone, I was having this conversation with my husband and he's like, well, why isn't, why, why didn't I know about testosterone replacement? Why is it that you're telling me and we're just starting it now? And I said, because testosterone prevents men from having to go on statins and antidepressants and blood pressure medications and sleeping pills. And he's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I get it now. Right. Because if we actually treat hormones and make someone get someone to feel better and also reverse their risk of disease, or at least reduce the risk of disease, then you don't need the metformin and the statin and the Lasartan and the Ambien and the, all the things. And that's that's huge money for big pharma, huge money versus a bioidentical hormone, which is no money for big pharma. Yeah. Yeah. Then the standard treatment, because I was speaking with a friend, she and I had gotten together for the first time in a long time. And she's like, we we're having this conversation. She's like, Did, have you gone through menopause? I'm like, oh, yeah, years ago. And she's like, well, this is what's going on. And my doctor just kept me on birth control to make my menopause easier. Right. So we, we play the birth control roulette game with a woman in her, you know, emerging on 50, which may or may not work. Right. Because they don't test you to put you on them. They just kind of throw you at them. And then it's like, okay, if those don't work, we're just going to try another one. And many times these are combination pills that have synthetic progestins, which are what caused the whole women's health study to stop because those cause blood clots, increase the risk of stroke and heart attack. And also the synthetic progestin was the one key element that also increased breast cancer risk. But so we'll play that Russian roulette with that. And then as soon as you kind of go through menopause, you you must stop that synthetic hormone immediately because you're going to die of breast cancer. Right. So it's good until this magical number of 50. Yeah. And then now it's not or whatever it is, 52 for you. But, you know, it's this kind of all of a sudden there's magic here. And it's, it's just still much in the same. And we have this craziness that we still have to go through as women where we don't actually get treated for the underlying cause at all of what's going on in our body. Right. Exactly. Now you had mentioned the, the women's health initiative study. So I want you to kind of go deeper on that because again, it's, we cannot talk about this enough. It doesn't matter how many podcasts I have on this. I will still, I will get a question in an hour that says, but my doctor said that hormones are going to cause breast cancer and blood clots. It's like, oh my God, have we not gotten this out into the world enough? Apparently not. So let's talk about why women are being told that hormones are dangerous and why some women still really believe that, that they need to avoid hormones. They're so scared of breast cancer and they're so scared of what they've been taught in, in society. Yeah, so, so yeah. I have so many, so many clients that I see personally that are, that are going to see somebody probably in my clinic, one of our physicians or nurse practitioners or PAs, and they'll come to see me first because they know I've studied this. Like I I dig in and I dig through the research, but they want to come see me and hear me tell them the research. So yes, I I feel like I say it, I talk about the study every day, every time I record a podcast, but I do feel like I have to, because obviously people just need to hear it again. So up until 2001, hormone replacement therapy was standard of care for women. Estradiol was standard of care and the care therapy of choice, even for osteoporosis, period. Right. So and actually up to date. So any woman dealing with osteoporosis type in up to date estradiol for osteoporosis. And there is so up to date is a clearinghouse of the cookbook. So the formula to do traditional care. 
and doctors use it so they can follow the latest consensus documents. Now, that depends on whether people are reading it or not. And a lot of times the things that we talk on on these podcasts are not on there. But if you look at that, it literally says estradiol should be the first line defense on osteoporosis because it's loss of estradiol driving the loss of bone mineral density and bone strength. So when we look at all of those things, everything came down to this women's health initiative. And so they picked women. Their average age was 67, which means if you use 50 as a proxy for for menopause, they had been out of their period, not having anything for somewhere between 10 and 15 years and 17. They also excluded healthy women. It was a large study, but they intentionally excluded women who were healthy in that age range. And the women that were in it had never done hormone replacement. And so they had three arms to the study. They had do nothing. They had Premarin only, which is a, a conjugated equine um, estrogens, and it's got 17 estrogens. And then they had Premarin combined with synthetic progestins. And, you know, so they, they set these women off and they were looking for their primary endpoints at this part. You know, and this is another thing in studies. We, we beat the data to death because once you get a study with a bunch of data, then people go in there and mine the data for other crap. Yeah. That was never the endpoints for the study. So it's really important to know when somebody's doing a study, what is it that they were looking for? Because believe me, I can, I can massage any numbers and get a stat that I want to publish, right? Anybody can, because you can do that. Math is wonderful that way. So the primary endpoints were stroke and heart attack risk. That was their original intent. And what they found is a couple years into the study, the women that were on the synthetic progestin and the Premarin had increased risk of stroke and heart attack. And it was, it was significant enough that they withdrew the study. Now, never mind the fact that the women that were on the Premarin alone had a reduced risk, and particularly a reduced risk. So somebody went back, massaged the data, look at breast cancer, and the women on Premarin actually had less breast cancer risk than the arm that had nothing. But even more importantly, we know that the sooner you replace hormones, especially if like testosterone before you have completely cratered, and the sooner you replace hormones as you're going through menopause, so you don't wait until your ovaries are completely flatlined, you try and put them in there before the symptoms are showing up and that kind of thing, then you keep the receptors. They keep getting stimulated appropriately. They're working better. So these women were on average 15 years out from having any hormones, and they were unhealthy to begin with. But that study was up for peer review. So peer review means it goes to committees. They dig through it to make sure it's got the rigor to get published. So it hadn't gone through that rigor, but it was the most expensive study ever done, particularly on women. Yep. So it was going to get published one way or the other. And all of the, the lead investigators, all the investigators have finally, 20 years later, admitted they all were going at it to prove hormone replacement for women was unsafe and unnecessary because we just were using it for symptom control, right. vasomotor symptoms. When it got published, it had already been sent out on a press release. They picked snippets. So the other thing is never read an abstract of a study because it's probably not really what the study studied and it probably has different conclusions than what's really in the data because it's a little tiny paragraph and it's usually got spin. So they released an unpeer-reviewed study out to the public right? So you know Fox News, CNN, all your 24-hour news channels ran with it, right. right? Everybody ran with it. And in that moment, it created panic. And the panic set in. Doctors were like, oh my God, I'm going to kill my patients. I'm going to stop 
prescribing it. Women saw it and they're like, I'm going to die. So they jump off their hormones. And at that moment, our entire paradigm shift because every study that had ever been done looking at the efficacy and safety of hormone replacement for women, particularly estrogen, and most of them were done on Premarin because that was the, you know, the, the most common drug, were favorable for all-cause mortality. So that means any death state, really. And so at that point, all of that was thrown away. Like, that never existed, and then all of a sudden we're going to die. And yet here we are. And it still gets it still gets quoted every day. It still gets quoted all the time. And then yeah. somebody else is going to go in there and massage the data about some other endpoint that they want to look at and then use that data again inappropriately to get an answer. And it's it's one of the most frustrating things in research. I mean, I went back to school to do research, and a lot of it, the further I get in it, the more just pissed off I get because only 15% of studies get published. And if they are unfavorable, they don't publish them. And because there's because in the university world, if you have an unfavorable outcome, it's hard to get money. So if I prove that drug was no better than placebo, then I'm not going to get my grant the next time. So what happens? We go, can I can I quote it as a percent of this change rather than a this you know, so so stuff gets manipulated. But as an American public and the public at large, we have been basically gaslighted by this study and we're still here today dealing with it. Oh, yeah. See, obviously, I'm pissed off. <laughs> oh, no, that and, and, and it's important. I always say that it's the most expensive yet worst study ever performed. And and one thing I didn't know until you just said it today, that the researchers were basically going in with. A, a bias. They were going in with the plan to prove that hormones are bad. Mm-hmm. And if you go in with that mindset and you're not going into a study with an open mindset of whatever the data says, the data says. So if you go in with that preconceived notion that hormones are bad and this is what we want to find, we're just all human. I mean, think about that. You know, human nature is that you're going to manipulate things to work in your favor for what you believe. We tend to find evidence to support our beliefs rather than the other way around. So that's really fascinating that all the researchers were basically like, yeah, we thought it was pretty bad. So that's why we went into this study, kind of thinking that we'd prove it. Yeah, I mean, academic and study integrity says if you have a hypothesis, your goal is to go disprove it, not prove it, right? And, you know, I was talking with a friend Saturday about, like, what would you impart if you had children? I don't have children. And I said, you know, I think one of the most critical things I could teach a child is critical thinking. And it's listening to your gut, listening to what your belief patterns are, and go ahead and understanding that they're yours, and then look up all the evidence that is opposite of yours. So you at least have the intelligence to be able to go and look at both sides and distinguish it. We've lost that capacity today in almost all areas of our world. We just we live in a vacuum. We get information in a vacuum, and then therefore we think that's the world, and we may not know that there's a whole other worldview out there, and it may actually be more accurate. Right. Because 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 modern media has made it such. So, you know, I think everybody should anytime you read a study, you should look at it and be super critical of what the results say and then just go type in the opposite and see, you know, because especially in nutrition, as a fellow nutrition Ph.D., there could be two equally done studies and one will be like veganism is going to save your life. And the next one's going to be like eat carnivore and you'll survive forever. Right. And they both are probably equally as good. Right. Just looking at different endpoints, different things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we're kind of combining everything that you said about that damn Super Bowl commercial with the Band-Aid medications for 
symptoms of menopause and then the Women's Health Initiative study. The bottom line is we don't have to band-aid it. We don't have to band-aid menopause. We don't have to be scared of supplementing with hormones to improve the symptoms of menopause, which is ultimately the root cause. It's not It's not a, another pharmaceutical that's needed. It's hormones that your body once produced, but it's no longer producing in adequate amounts anymore because of age and decline and ovarian decline. So kind of springboarding off of that into hormone replacement therapy, let's speak on the safety and efficacy and then what women can expect when they actually start utilizing, working with a a professional that knows what the hell they're doing with hormones is the caveat. What can they expect when they actually start using bioidentical hormone replacement? We've talked a little bit about this um, today, and we've talked about it before on our previous podcast. I think, you know, every person's a little different, and bioidentical hormones has different um, different delivery mechanisms. So, you know, one woman may do great on injectables. Another woman may do great on a patch and an oral progesterone for estradiol. You know, it's, it's, it's all of that. So I say, you know, the most important thing someone's got to do is make sure that they get tested so they actually can look at the data and know where they start. Because again, it's really interesting to me, you can have one person that's on a pretty healthy dose, let's say of estradiol, and they'll come back and they'll say, you know, I (laughs) I don't don't think I feel much, I still have vaginal dryness, my skin's really dry, I'm aging, I'm wrinkling, da 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 da. And then another woman you give just like, tiny little bit and they're like I got it <laughs> I got it right yeah so I think it's really important that we monitor right we monitor those levels and you know if we look at the conditions that are associated pretty much all cause mortality goes down bone density problems and osteoporosis go down heart disease the risk for Alzheimer's and dementia go down there is a slight very slight increased risk of breast cancer from the women's health study right if we look at it And they, of course, massage the data to make it sound more severe. So every woman over 50 has a has a four in 1000 chance for getting breast cancer, of which goes up the moment you go through menopause. So you were protected when you had a bunch of hormones. Right. And early, you know, having children earlier onset of menses actually protects you against breast cancer. So that's kind of interesting. So you got to remember that that's that's contradictory. Right. So if estrogen was so damaging, why would having a bunch of kids actually decrease your risk because your hormones get really wildly high then. So it was four in 1000 for women over 50, right? That were untreated. So no hormone replacement in that study, gigantic number of people, unhealthy women, it went to five in 1000, right? So the relative risk rate hazard ratio is not even statistically significant, but yet you know, they presented it that it was a, what was it, like 25% increase or something. I forgot how they presented it um, when it went out. And then it was like, oh my God, I'm going to die of breast cancer. But you're actually equally as at risk if you don't have any hormone replacement. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think knowing that breast cancer really doesn't have those risks and we have all the positive benefits of hormone replacement to somebody's uni- uniqueness. So if you were somebody that had fibroids and endometriosis and heavy periods, you, you are a little bit of a canary with your hormones. Somebody needs to tightly monitor because you're the one that's probably going to have to shift a little bit with what you do. You know, it's not just a go and throw and you just take your hormones and run away because you already had some estrogen dominant problems, maybe, maybe, you know, since the day you started. But I think, 
it's important to get treated. And then I think it's important to monitor. And so I always recommend obviously monitoring with blood work because it's easy, quick, and you're checking all your hormones like thyroid and, and those kind of things at the same time. Cause again, they're a symphony and they play together. But then I'm an advocate for hormone metabolism, right? That's my dissertation is literally looking at what your body does with estrogen as it moves out of the body and what the microbiome does with it. So like I am so immersed in hormone metabolism that it's, you know, kind of scary. And because those hormones, as we break it down, so think of it as we have this estrogen piece that's not really active when it gets sent to the liver and it starts to get metabolized, the metabolites or that once the liver's acted on at least once, those metabolites are metabolically active, meaning they can go touch on the receptors and turn them on. Mm-hmm. So if you can't clear them from the body, you have basically a broken estrogen that's not eliciting a positive effect, but is actually turning on the receptor. And things like your xenoestrogens, your pesticides, herbicides, that's what they do also. So I think it's important once somebody's on replacement that we monitor that. Like I check mine because I have a lot of mutations in that pathway. I'm not great at getting rid of my estrogen, but I can monitor. Yep. You know, I can monitor it and see it and reduce the likelihood of symptoms and other things and reduce that overall concern. And I do think people need to know that and they need to know that that's available and out there for them to do. You know, it's just conventional medicine is slow to the game. So you have to go find somebody else that will really treat and treat individually. Right. Absolutely. So do you, when you're looking at someone comes into your clinic, you're going to do hormone replacement on them, their menopausal. Will you, so you will start with blood. When will you bring in the Dutch test to look at the metabolites? Will you do that right away or will you start them on hormones and then bring in the Dutch? You know, in a perfect world, I'd want both at the same time, you know, because blood only gives you bound and free. You can't tell the difference. So you can't tell if your hormone got out of the taxi cab or not. The Dutch shows us both. Right. So the Dutch shows us what's free and shows us how we metabolize it. But the Dutch is also somewhat expensive. So if we know that we're here, we're going to do hormone replacement, we not we might do the blood levels to give us sort of a quick and dirty, easy to get where are you at? Because if you're bottomed out there, you're bottomed out and then start hormone replacement therapy. And we may wait six, eight, 12 weeks, particularly if we're tweaking therapy and then test to see how you metabolize it. No matter what, even if we Dutch test somebody in the beginning, we always test again once they're on replacement so we can see that they're getting rid of it appropriately. And we're not stimulating DHT or something like that that we don't want to do, you know. And then I recommend doing a Dutch test once a year, you know, just to kind of make sure you're kind of watching it. Definitely. Yep. I love it. I love it. So the bottom line for women, so I'm going to let you summarize everything that we talked about because we bounced around a lot, but it all is coming back to... Really, I mean, what women can do in menopause and that and, and avoiding that silent suffering. So give us your kind of summary of today's talk. Yeah, so I would say recognize that you're suffering, that what you're going through is real and and all women go through it to some degree. And and not to fall for, you know, crafty marketing like, you know, this drugs marketing to look at just those two symptoms that are, you know, something they've made a drug for. And I'd say the other part is to to know that you can get your hormones tested and get them tested at a minimum. Step one, get them tested. See where you're at. See what's happening. Yes, they're probably flatlined, but every once in a while we find outliers. And then I would highly recommend looking for a functional medicine provider that can individualize your treatment to get you balanced 
and start on hormone replacement sooner rather than later. The, the further we go out from menopause, the less those receptors work. And we don't really know, because none of the studies have really been done on bioidentical hormones, whether they are more risky when you get 10, 15 years out. Most of everybody's sort of extrapolating from the women's health study that if you pick a 65-year-old woman, she's never had hormones, it may not be safe. So our general rule of thumb is earlier is better, continuous is better. If you're more than 10 years out, I'm not, I don't prescribe, so I'm just kind of in generalities. I don't think everybody could be no, but I don't think everybody's a yes either. So I think it's important, and I, and I think it's important for women to go through that rigor to look for that because it, it does lead to a greater risk for all of the diseases that we die from. You know, this doesn't help us to live longer if we're going to be sick the entire time we're living longer. And that's what I don't understand. It's like, why not use something like BHRT to improve the quality of your life? I've always said, I don't want to live to 100 necessarily. I'll take 85, like a kick-ass rock star, you know, keeping my looks like Raquel Welch and, you know, going snowboarding when I'm 80. Like, that's the goal, right? That's the goal. It's not longevity per se in length of time. It's quality. Yeah, it's health span. It's it's yeah. not valuable if you live to 100, but the last 25 years we're in a bed. Right, exactly. You know, exactly. I, I well, this is just you. such a vital conversation that just needs to be talked about over and over and over again so women get it but you don't have to suffer period end of story so thank you so much betty i appreciate it thank you thank you amy 